This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. The first love letter I ever wrote was to a boy that sat behind me in my 10th grade trigonometry class. I was terrified to reveal my true feelings, so rather than pass him a note in class or ask a friend of mine to tell him, I decided to, just to send him an anonymous message. Late one afternoon, when no one was looking, I went up to his locker, took out a pencil out of my bag, and wrote right on the locker door, I like you. And then, for added drama and flourish, I drew a heart around my errant communique. My silly hijinks caused quite a stir among our friends, including the boy, who all spent hours trying to figure out who could have left the mysterious message. My opinion was sought after on the matter, which was actually rather sad, as no one considered me the possible culprit, and I never revealed my authorship to anyone. Since then, most of my sentimental gestures have been more forthright, and any pronouncements sent in return have been meticulously treasured. I have kept most of the love letters of my youth tucked away in fabric boxes. I also have kept a long list of other tidings, including birthday greetings, postcards from foreign countries, the badly designed foldovers that come attached to bouquets of flowers, and even dog-eared ticket stubs of shows and concerts and sports events that I have attended. I even managed to keep the first paper phone message taken by a receptionist at a job I had in 1987 from the man who was eventually to become my first husband. In fact, the message lasted longer than the marriage. But whether it be letter writing or cave drawings or smoke signals or Morse code or paper phone messages, I believe that people have an innate and nearly involuntary need to communicate with each other. We need to share stories and reveal secrets and compare notes and mark time. The philosopher Ferdinand de Saussure stated that spoken language is an expression of thought and that written language is purely a supplement to this spoken one. He believed that writing was to be regarded as secondary and that speech alone held the center of human attention. But as technology has become the centerpiece of our daily lives, and with the increased dominance of the media, signs and symbols have begun to take over the place that language has had in our culture. Linguists believe that speech is due a semiotic shift, and that language will no longer occupy the center of our attention as writing takes the spotlight with its sign-based symbolism. So while our prehistoric ancestors lived in a physical universe, we are now inhabiting a more symbolic universe. Language, myth, art, and religion are now all parts of this universe, and they have become the various threads weaving together a symbolic net and the tangled web of our shared human experience. This shared human experience is manifesting itself in bold and new ways. 
Not very long ago, I sat in a meeting to review some design work that two young women had created for a pro bono community project. I sat in a conference room with the designers and members of the organization's marketing team, evaluating the work and offering feedback. <laughs> Before either of the two young women responded to any of the, the comments that were being made, they jointly seemed to be conferring with something that was underneath the table or on their laps. It took me about 15 minutes to realize what they were doing, but when I did, I was astounded. For as they sat there together in this conference room full of people, as they sat there separated by a large boardroom-type table, they were secretly text messaging each other in order to be able to communicate without actually communicating. Recent studies of text messaging actually describe the experience as expressive and creative. Teenagers in particular put more effort into composing short messages that convey precisely what they feel. The constraints of the medium and their desire to express themselves make text messaging very personal for them. They collect significant messages to evoke the moment they were received, to recall and reminisce. Some are reluctant to give up their old mobile phones for a newer model because the old phone holds messages that are dear to them. A downloaded or handwritten version would not do. They're like the wrapping and the card signifying that an actual object is a special gift put away in a drawer, come upon every now and again, always evoking that moment. Though this is the enchantment of technology, it is a prosaic experience for the sentimental recipient. I too understand this prosaic experience. Last Christmas, a good friend text messaged me that he had just gotten engaged, and 13 months later I still had that message saved in my cell phone. I keep every single email letter from my friends Sue and Catherine and Marion and Emily. I feel certain pride in this accumulation. Again, it is proof of a shared, tangible experience. And truth be told, I love the immediacy and lack of self-consciousness in most technological connections. But as much as I covet this accumulation, I wonder what the cognitive effect is in this mode of communication. The love affair our culture has with communicating by keyboard has drastically reduced the amount of time we write by hand, so much so that the New York Times recently reported that the skill, like an unused muscle, is pretty much dead by the time we were in high school. High school. What are the ramifications of losing our handmade muscle? Yes, our ability to communicate now is certainly beneficial to the culture, but what does it mean for us individually? Throughout time, we have used our hands to satisfy our needs, whether spiritual or down-to-earth. This creation of meaning from nothing may be our greatest achievement. They bear witness to the artist and the human in all of us. And while computers might set type in flawlessly accurate columns, things that are made by hand are beautiful by virtue of their irregularity and their soul. Res what resonates in these objects is an inherent authenticity and honesty. Like a fingerprint, the visual language of these messages provides an indelible imprint. What is contained in these objects is enduring. The intent is more obvious, and it is harder to take back. No matter how well written a text message may be, it is nowhere near as alluring or effective as leaving an anonymous love letter handwritten on the door of the locker of your first high school crush. 
Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and I am thrilled, I am humbled, I am honored to tell you that my guest today is Doyle Young. Before we get started with our interview, let me just tell you a little bit more about him. Over a five-decade career, master typographer Doyle Young has been both a doer and a teacher, combining his design practice with a teaching position at the Art Center College of Design in Southern California, where he holds the inaugural Master of the College title. To say that he has specialized in the design of logotypes, corporate alphabets, and typefaces is an understatement. Young has defined and set the benchmark of craftsmanship and innovation for the entire genre and the industry. Some of Vince's clients include the Grammy Awards, the Tony Awards, General Electric, Xerox, but Midler, Paris Hilton, and Prince. Welcome, Doyle. It is an honor to have you with me today. Hello, Debbie. Hello, Doyle. So I want to start by asking you about something that Stefan Bucher called you. He called you the master of sensuous curves. He also declared 2006 the year of the Doyle because it seemed as though your work was everywhere. Everyone from Paris Hilton to ESPN was using your fonts. So what is this, um, this, what is this year of the Doyle been like for you? Well, it's been amazing. It's, uh, it's wonderful to see your work, of course, spread around. Uh, I noticed that Fergie, uh, uh, the al- her album uses Young Baroque. <laughs> it's been fussed up a little bit, and... Uh, also on uh, uh, an online magazine, they they used my font Eclat for Fergie, so I'm covered in both areas. Wow, she likes you a lot, huh? <laughs> so, but but anyway, uh, applause is always sweet. Now, tell me about the master of sensuous curves. Where did that come from? How did how did he create that moniker for you? I mean, obviously you're known for your gorgeous curves, but how did he come up with sensuous curves? Oh, I don't know. You know, he wants to call. My, I'm writing a new book, and he wants to call that dangerous curves. Mm. And I said, Well, now, what, what do you mean by dangerous curves? And he says, As in Gina Lola Brigida. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, I don't know. He uh, uh, Art Center has uh, got me to teach a class again. I haven't taught there for a while, and uh, they wanted it to be an advanced class, and. Uh, uh, they have, the students haven't had some formal script, and I thought it would be a good chance to sort of talk about drawing and curves. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nick Hoffermeister, the uh, graphics chair, uh, talked to Stefan, who came up with Doyle's Got Curves for the uh-huh. class. Yes. So I think it all comes from that. Okay. Well, I, I want to talk to you a bit about a quote of yours that I read. Um, it is about how you feel about drawing. And you said, if you improve your drawing skills, you will become a better designer, period. Tell me why you feel that way. Well, you know, as Milton Glaser says, uh, he can't think without a pencil. Yes. And uh, I think that that's all part of the process. Um, Who's the the, uh, lead designer for BMW? Got me there. Talking to Nick Hoffermeister, and he says, now, are you still requiring your card uh, transportation designers to take lettering? And he says, yes. He says, well, I think it's important because it makes them better uh, car designers. It makes them draw, create better curves on a car. 
So uh, all of that, I think, uh, has something to do with uh, the ultimate thing that we do in, in forms of layout and design. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, of actual drawing skills now, I mean, I don't know that designers quite have the same um, enthusiasm for, for drawing skills that they might have in the past. Um, I'm wondering if you are wary of designers that can't draw. Well, no. Um, uh, it's a special talent. Uh, whether a designer who can draw against someone who can't draw is a better designer, I don't know. I wouldn't make that call. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, creativity and our creative abilities are spread in many areas. Uh, I know a, a good friend of mine, Jay Cross, retired now from his profession. He was many times an Emmy Award winner. Who can't draw mm-hmm. and make some sketches, but he doesn't have what I call great drawing skills. Uh, and uh, and yet he uh, is, is a great designer. He has a great sense of color, a great sense of form, a great sense of proportion. Uh, there are people who, who have a wonderful color sense and really know, say, design ability. Mm-hmm. Our, our talents are spread uh, sometimes haphazardly. Well, I want to talk to you more about haphazard talent and your talent, which is hardly haphazard, uh, after the break. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is master typographer and designer Doyle Young. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Four hundred ones, stock, mortgage, retirement, wealth—we cover it all. Voice America Business. Welcome to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe, where creative professionals speak out about their work and what inspires them. Luis Blanco and Michael Uman are the creative directors of Interspectacular, a concept studio known for its wacky print and broadcast work. Luis and Michael, the work you did for Comedy Central has a street art look to it. What inspired you to go in that direction? We wanted to go as far in the other direction from that kind of polished, glossy network look. And we thought, well, what if it's just like kind of black and white Xerox that's chopped out and kind of stuck on? The thing is, it's not so much that we wanted to make Comedy Central a street art network, because that's not what it was meant. It was going to those sources and seeing what techniques and methods these artists were using to create imagery and using that as a source of inspiration. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Luis and Michael tell us more about where their inspiration comes from. This is Wynton Marcellus for AIGA New York. Nicholas Troxler has spent a lifetime turning the passion and soul of jazz into some of the most compelling poster design ever. AIGA New York proudly presents Look, Listen, Nicholas Troxler in New York City, a benefit for the city of New Orleans followed by a concert by Cecil Taylor, the new AHA 3, and John Zorn's Acoustic Masala. We know y'all are going to enjoy it. And please go to AIGANewYork.org to register and get all the details. Mom, my tooth fell out. The coach says I can play shortstop. I could be a deciduous tree. You live for the firsts in your child's life. But how do you cope with the firsts that come after your child is diagnosed with cancer? 
CureSearch.org connects you to the doctors and scientists whose collaborative research has turned childhood cancer from a nearly incurable disease to one with an overall cure rate of 78%. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. It has been said that to live is to choose, but to choose well, you must know who you are and what you stand for, where you want to go, and why you want to get there. On Reap What You Sow with host, performance management specialist, and executive coach, Alana Daly, achievement and success through expanding yourself and your life is available at the click of a mouse. Reap through redefining your goals. Educate your mind, your body, your conscious, and unconscious. Apply what you learn and plan, and it shall be. Success over and over again, and wealth result when you reap regularly. Reap what you sow with Alana Daly. Broadcast each Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Reap what you sow. Learn the rules of the game. Then play better than anyone else. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.20, and you're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is master typographer and designer Doyle Young. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Doyle, our phone lines are open. Please call 1-866-472-5790. And Doyle, we have a caller on the phone for you. We have Gregory from New York. Thank you for calling Design Matters, Gregory. Hey, hi there. Hi, Doyle. Hello, Gregory. I have a couple of questions. First question I have is, did you design Maddie Mattel? No, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> That is, that's an icon from my childhood that I'm sorry doesn't exist anymore. Um, the other question, and, and the, before I say anything else, I, I want to say thanks so much for sharing your gift both as a designer and as an educator. It's, it's a great contribution. Well, thank you. Um, my, my question is, um, given how people design today all um, on a machine, do you fear that there is, it's in jeopardy of, of typography by hand being something that's lost. Yes. Are there, um, I mean, uh, is there any kind of movement to mentor young people to encourage them? Because you were speaking earlier about how important it was to draw. Um, is there any sort of movement to um, inspire and mentor young people, uh, encouraging them to preserve the art? Well, at Art Center, um, Nick Hoffermeis, uh, who is... Uh, great innovator, he wants to get back to some basic drawing, and we're trying to introduce more drawing classes. I, you know, I spoke in 40 cities over the past two years for smart papers to AIGA groups, and, uh, you know, and each, there were a lot of students in the audience, a lot of teachers, and uh, they're all impressed with drawing, and yet the computer, the Mac, has so overtaken the design world, and particularly in college curriculums that sometimes some of the basic classes are squeezed out. So it takes a concerted effort to reinstate them. I still think my mantra really is drawing is important. And do you think, they're, do you think young people are open to that? Well, yes, they, they, they like it, but then how do you affect these changes? Right. I don't know. Yeah. 
Right. Well, I, I hope I hope it doesn't go away, and you've been one of the greatest contributors. Thank you so much. You're welcome, and thanks for the call. Thank you for calling, Gregory. Um, do I want to talk to you a little bit more about drawing? Um, I, I was very lucky, and prior to uh, our interview today, you sent me some of the work for your new book. And um, in, in some of what I read, uh, I, I was really moved by many of the passages, and, and this one in particular about drawing. And you write, so much of the act of drawing is based on our perceptive abilities. And I want to know a little bit more about what you meant by that. So much of the act of drawing is based on our perceptive abilities. Well, you know, so many people are not taught to see. Uh, I think that the... Uh, Art of, uh, I even have another quote for that. The true art of memory, for instance, is the art of attention. Mm. I think you have to, and Susan Sontag says this in a remarkable lecture that she gave to some girls at Vassar. Uh, you have to pay attention. You have to learn how to see. Someone has to teach you to look. You know, for instance, when we look at an object, we usually look, we look at the whole thing and our focus is oftentimes on the center of the object and never really on its outline. I think that we have to see what that outline is. I think that we have to notice how a curve accelerates or slows down. Remember, curves is what drawing is really all about. In what way do you mean curves is what drawing is, is all about? Well, you know, uh, how else can I say that? Um, uh, if you use a T-square triangle, you come up with a rectilinear object, which anyone can do. Uh-huh. Uh, if you're going to draw something, you have to be able to analyze the object. You have to be able to see what that line is. You have to, to measure visually uh, how high it is, how, how wide it is, what that ratio is. All of that, it really is... How do you decipher what you're looking at? Now, how can you be taught to see? I mean, is that something that's really possible? Well, how do you teach someone to that's see? That's what I do. Uh, we, you know, at, at Art Center, the whole idea of teaching lettering is not to make someone draw letters later on. It's just another way of seeing. It's another way of drawing. Um, I have lots of trouble trying to get... Uh, or artists who are even illustrators to draw a smooth curve. And uh, many art teachers know that you really have to look at the space around a line in order to draw that line properly. How do you do that? Well, you point it out. You point out the flat spots. You point out where it curves too quickly. Uh, and this is... Uh, sort of a mind-numbing experience because you have to do it over and over and over until the student finally sees that. Mm -hmm. Finally sees that there is a, a that the curve or the loop is spatulate or whether its radius is, is the right size. Uh, you have to compare if you're drawing an ellipse or a circle or an oval, you have to compare both sides to see if the radius is the same. It's all about comparison. It's all about minutely observing what you're looking at. Now, you also said in, in the chapter that I was reading in, in what will be the book Dangerous Curves, you said that some people lack basic observation. 
Now, what do you mean by basic observation? What what aren't they capable of seeing, or what aren't they seeing that that you can show them? Okay. Uh, who is the last person you met, and what is the color of their eyes? Hmm. You got me there. Uh, Susan's son says, "Be alert." Um, and here, I, you know, I quote in. And, and I'm talking about ideas, and I'll read this to you. It says, teachers say ideas beget ideas, while authorities don't wait for inspiration, get to work. Just as important, where do ideas come from? Mostly they come from things we've seen. These may be buried deep in our memory, and exploration makes them percolate to our conscious level. Samuel Johnson, the great lexicographer, said, the true art of memory is the art of Attention. Mm-hmm. So we have to, and I, you know, I think that parents have to instill this in children. I think you have to be taught to to be attentive and to ask questions. Do you trust memory? No. Particularly <laughs> <laughs> not at my age. You know, I'm uh, I'm 80 years old now, and. Uh, all of my memory is a bit suspect. Even my knowledge is a bit suspect, I say. Mm-hmm. Um, all, all the people that write, uh, that always question, they're always suspicious of memory. Uh, there are those who say that all autobiographies are monumental lies. Uh, you know, memory is elusive. We remember, we remember the good things and we try to forget the bad, I think. Mm. Actually, I know some people that do the opposite. They just dwell on the bad. <laughs> Those are called victims. <laughs> yes, they are. You know, um, another another marvelous passage in um, Dangerous Curves is your description of how Bernice uh, Polifka taught. And, and you wrote, and I love this part. You said, one of her assignments asked each student to choose either a fruit or a vegetable and create a series of drawings to be bound in a modest book. She demanded 50 sketches during class, 50 for homework, followed by an additional 50 or more the following week. After 200 or more sketches, the drawings would begin to show individuality and finally great style. So how long did it take in your career for you to begin to show individuality, your doiled youngness, and then your great style? Well, that's a difficult question. Uh, I think perhaps, first of all, I don't think that I really have a style. Do you really think that I have a style? Uh, Maybe a level of quality that because it's so unmatched, and is it now a benchmark? If someone showed me hand lettering of that quality, I would know it was yours. But it's really because you're the only person that can do it. Probably not so much from. Although I, I don't know, Doyle. I think that I see a curve, and I might say that's a Doyle curve. <laughs> well, do you know I can recognize a font by from on Zap. Uh, I think that uh, Adrian Frutiger, who designed. Universe and uh, of course his eponymous font Frutiger uh, and Apollo and lots of other wonderful things. I think that he has style. I can recognize an O that he's drawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, that, but all that I've ever tried to do is to try to draw them as carefully and as good as I can. Now, I understand that you spent time with Frutiger and you were in his Paris studio in the fifties. And at that point, wherein he showed you early drafts of what was to become 
universe. universe. Tell us about that. Well, it was 1956, and I, I called to see if I could see him, and they granted me an interview, and it was with uh, uh, the younger uh, Mr. DeBernie and tall, handsome man wearing a, I'll never forget, a wonderful blue pinstripe suit. And Fuderg was young. I think he was 30 years old then, maybe 31, and very studious, very serious. And uh, I had just gotten in from Amsterdam where I had talked to Dr. Ovink at the uh, Amsterdam Type Foundry, who said that they were not concentrating on sands these days. They were trying to do something <laughs> else. And, of course, this sort of electrified Fuder, because here he had all of these drawings. They'd been working for several years on the project. Uh, but anyway, they went ahead and uh, produced it, and uh, he showed me all those marvelous drawings that he had done, and uh, it was a great moment. Now, you also worked for 17 years with Mr. Dreyfus. Yes. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about what working with Henry Dreyfus was like? Well, Henry was one of the most no-nonsense designers that I've ever met. He was absolutely honest. He never wanted an object to leave his design office to look as though it had been designed. That's what he told me one day. And uh, he was, uh, you know, for instance, that uh, uh, Honeywell thermostat, the yes. studio in the room, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that was designed 70 years ago, and it still looks good. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a great symbol or icon of what Dreyfus was all about. Yes. Uh, he was formal. Uh, I, I admired him. I'd worked for him for several years, and I was in his office one day, and his wife, Doris Marks, was there. And I was still calling him Mr. Dreyfus. And she says, Henry, have you ever asked Doyle to call you Henry? And uh, he looked at me and says, please do. And from then on, it was Henry. He was uh, uh, a genius. Uh, we would a, a project would come into the office. They'd call me in to do some work on it. We'd labor. Sometimes it was a very difficult things. And then Henry would let us stew for a couple of weeks, and finally, why he would he would come in and solve the problem immediately. Mm-hmm. He was really a great designer. Um, I admired him. He had great restraint, great taste. Uh, there was no affectation about him at all. Uh, he was articulate. Uh, he didn't laugh very often. Occasionally, he did. He, in his later years, he said the world really wants young designers. They get tired of us oldsters. And Mm. that's sort of a sad comment. Do you feel that that's true, though, in your career? Well, I don't don't know. I I quite frankly and honestly, I fear appearing old-fashioned. And I I don't want to be old-fashioned. I do say this, though, about topography and letters that they seem not to age if they're done right. Well, aren't we using some of the same typography that people used I centuries ago? Of course. And, you know... We what else can we say is being used other than right. things that we need to survive? Then, you know, Futura was designed in 1929, sort of at the height of the flapper era. Franklin Gothic, which we still use, uh, was designed, what, 1903? Um Cheltenham was designed in the early 19th, uh, 20th century. 
And for, you know, 20 years, it was one of the most popular of all fonts. And uh, it, uh, it, it is being used in the New York Times these days for headings in the magazine. So uh, fonts usually don't age. It's the stuff that we put around them that gives it a date. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you, one of your other teachers, one of your other great teachers was Mortimer Leach. Yes. And and you've written that he taught you many things, including how to sharpen a pencil. And and I, I love that. Um, how did he teach you how to sharpen a pencil? Well, first, well, uh, in those days we used uh, wooden pencils, and he taught us to, to sharpen what he called a draftsman's point, where you exposed a generous amount of the lead. And that way, you uh, as you worked with the pencil, you didn't have to sharpen it on a sand pad so frequently. Mm-hmm. Because as you draw also, you can twist the pencil to capture a new point. It's just that simple. And he also, you also said that, that Mortimer Leach was your greatest teacher and, and that you, what you believe about letters springs from his words. And can you tell us some of those beliefs about letters that most influenced you? Well, you know, he was from New York. He worked. He said he worked in the bullpens for many years, and he was famous for his Caslon. And uh, he, while he liked the font, he also saw its uh, shortcomings, particularly when it was used for headlines. You know, it was mm-hmm. Aaron Burns who first said, you know, don't use a text face for headlines uh, because that you know the sizes uh, are, are, are quite important. Mm-hmm. Uh, small type size, a uh, small font enlarged to a very large size, looks clunky because of the thins or get so heavy. And uh, so Mort redrew the Caslin to his aesthetic. Uh, he changed the proportions. Uh, I was always amazed at, and this is sort of funny to talk about, but in drawing an O or drawing a lowercase e, the shoulders or the curves that he put at the top and bottom of that always impressed me. Um, so many fonts have curves that drop off too quickly. And by putting a little more shoulder or a little more heft there, it gave it a more sturdy appearance. These are subtle things. Yes, yes. Uh, he was a, a fanatic about detail. Uh, he would just have us retouch with white, then with lamp black, and white again. It was an endless process. It was also eye-opening. Mm-hmm. Now, in the 1980s, the, we went through in, in the design industry what was called the legibility wars, wherein designers were doing things with type that had never been done before, breaking it up and squishing it around and people like Neville Brody and Ed Fellon, David Carson, Zuzana Licko, Rudy Vangelance. They started working with types in, in ways that made it virtually illegible. What did you think when you first saw work coming out like that? Well, it proves that the public is fickle and the public always wants something that's different. And uh, so much of design is really oftentimes an attempt to be different then say, instead of trying to be better. Really? So do you, do you feel like that work was 
in in some ways quality compromised? Do you, well, what, what do you feel about that work? It's, it's, it's experimental. How do you uh, and how do you think about experimental topography? Topography to me always means to to communicate. You really want to communicate to your reader. Mm-hmm. I uh, I have uh, lots of. Uh, uh, um, objections to the use of small type these days. Designers want to use three and four point type. They want to make it small as though they were ashamed of the type. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all there to communicate. Uh, my last book, which is called The Art of the Letter that I did for Smart Papers, I used nine point. I used a font called Renaissance and uh, I, I had misgivings about that because I felt it was a little small. Mm-hmm. And yet people, I notice, have gotten sort of used to reading small type. Well, do you think it's more of a decorative element and people are doing that so that they, so that it's just part of an overall design that has just as much importance as uh, a credit or a caption or a headline? Or do you feel that it is intrinsically about making something smaller to put more words on the page? Well, no, I, I do think, though, that designers, as designers, you want to make something look attractive so that people will look at it, and in doing that, sometimes there's too much text, too much copy, and you want to minimize that so that you have a lot of white space. There's all kinds of considerations about that. Um, but and, and I, don't, I don't mind the small type so much if I would only track it out a little bit so that it's a little more openly spaced, so that it becomes a little more legible. My mantra really in about designing logos or using type is make it readable. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, there was a wonderful art director at Young and Rubicon years ago named Bob Wheeler. He said, uh, and he had, was from West Virginia, he had a wonderful southern accent. He was talking to Mort Leach, and he said... Uh, now, Mort, I want you to make this legible because we can always add the jewelry later. <laughs> That's wonderful. That oh, is I, do, wonderful. I do think legibility is what I'm most concerned about. Now, I, uh, in talking about um, the legibility wars, obviously, um, what was, perhaps except for Ed Fella, um, the way that that type was, was created was, in, was using the computer. And I know that... Um, You've, you've said that you've used the computer for over 20 years, but you've yet to master the art of a quick sketch in Illustrator. But with a pencil, you can design a rough sketch of a logo in less than a minute. And uh, I have a couple of questions. First, you, were you really using computers 20 years ago? I mean, you were really on the leading edge then if you were working in, uh, in computers uh, 20 years ago. Well, you know, I, uh, I bought my first computer, I think, in 1988. And the first job that I... I worked on it for a while, but the first job, I designed a book for UCLA called The Landscape Drawings of Rudy, uh, a collection of Rudy Bonfels for UCLA. It was 220 pages, and it was absolutely a gantlet uh, of trying to learn that program. I, I thought that I would never complete the book, <laughs> but it was a great learning experience. Now, my second question is a logo in a minute. Now, I know that you work, you can work remarkably fast. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about your process? Well, you know, when I say I can do this in a minute, that means that I have to draw it small. Right. Now, the reason I draw small, for instance, I like to draw small. I've always liked detail. Uh, 
most logos are commonly used at a small site, like for instance in print or even say on web pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that what what I try to do is to draw it at that small size as it would be sort of commonly used. Because what that does, it gives me a concept of the proper weight to use, the proportion of the letters, and the space between the letters. If you draw, for instance, at a larger size, if I if I drew that at one inch tall, I would you, there's a tendency to want to space the letters tighter and a tendency also to thin them down too much. Mm-hmm. So that's the main reason that I do it. And again, if you have a sharp pencil and if you've got a word that's, what, six, seven letters long, it doesn't take long to draw those letters. Mm-hmm. If you're working, say, at about, oh, two inches, I sometimes will do... Um, Oh, East 21, which is a hotel in Tokyo, I did a lot of little sketches there that are one and a half inch wide. Now, I know that you've also many times uh, drawn work um, to illustrate a point. You've drawn a sketch of a logo in the presence of a client uh, to illustrate a point. So how quickly, how quickly do you manage to come? How do you come up with these ideas so quickly? Well, you know, I have... I've done this a long time. Uh, I, I have a pretty good uh, uh, vocabulary of fonts. You know, I, I have read type books like people read novels, but mm-hmm. slowly. I've studied type books for a very long time. I know lots of fonts. And, you know, my blue book, uh, the fonts and logos, I have 377 fonts in that book. Wow. So remember, it's all about memory. And uh, if you're able to conjure that up, uh, which I do, you know, I can, and I don't quite know how I do it, I can design a logo in my head. I can see that logo. Uh, I can do that while I'm driving a car, which I probably shouldn't be doing. <laughs> but it, oh, I'm sorry. That whole, that whole process of mentally doing it is, is part of that quick ability to draw in front of somebody. Mm-hmm. True, these are roughs. They're, 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 they're not precise, but they're rough. But they're rough ideas to illustrate a point. Now, do you feel that most designers working today are, have become overly dependent on the computer? Mm, uh, probably, uh, though I'm no, I'm no judge of that for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems to me that a lot of work that I see appears rectilinear. Uh, rectilinear. At right angles. Mm-hmm. An absence of curves because it's easier to do. Easier cool. to draw, uh, create boxes and things, mm-hmm. as opposed to drawing some curves. Who's working? Who, who's working today that you admire? Who do you feel is is doing some good work? Well, I have a great uh, uh, admiration for Frank Blockman. Mm-hmm. He's in in the Netherlands. He has a, a wonderful foundry called Dutch Type Library. And he's very much a classicist. He has a wonderful font called, a redrawing called Fleischmann that I enjoy very much. He has a good website for people to look at. Mm. Uh, and then in Paris, there's a, man, a marvelous young man. His name is Jean-Francois Porchet, P-O-R-C-H-E-Z. Yes. At the Porchet Type Foundry. And uh, 
he speaks easily, and he has some wonderful designs. He has a lovely needle that I admire very much. Well, Doyle, we have to go to another break. Right. Um, but we'll be back for uh, another 15 minutes after this commercial break. I'd like to let everybody know that they are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is master typographer and designer, Doyle Dion. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Luis Blanco and Michael Uman of Interspectacular, the concept studio that designed the look for Comedy Central. Where do you guys get all your ideas? Uh, you know, I don't. I just. I think a lot of it is just I'm informed by pop culture. I've been a mass consumer of pop culture from watching schlocky horror films. I love subculture, comic books. I look at bad science fiction movies. You know, cartoons. You know, you catch me most Saturday mornings. No kids, just me watching Saturday morning cartoons. We spend, like I'd say, a good part of the day just cracking jokes and entertaining ourselves. And we know that if we, you know, do is tell a story that makes us crack up, we're sure that there's somebody else out there who's going to see some of the humor that, you know, we're trying to present. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Luis and Michael talk to us about working in a creative team. This is Wynton Marcellus for AIGA New York. You know, when you talk about jazz, most people think of the blues. But Matisse, Bearden, Lawrence, Stuart Davis, and other 20th century masters inspired by this music saw a whole range of colors. For me, jazz is a visual medium. And maybe nobody proves that better than Nicholas Troxler, who spent a lifetime turning the passion and soul of jazz into some of the most compelling poster design ever. Now you can hear it from the man himself followed by a concert by Cecil Taylor, the new AHA 3, and John Zorn's acoustic, Masada. AIGA New York proudly presents Look, Listen, Nicholas Troxler in New York City, a benefit for the most noble city of New Orleans, Saturday, March 10th at Jazz at Lincoln Center in the House of Swing. Go to AIGANewYork.org to register and get all the details. Don't miss this once-in-a-lifetime event and see how Troxler saturates his work with the rhythmic energy of pulsating swinging jazz music. Yes, indeed. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Hi, from the Empire State Building, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the absolutely lovely Doyle Young. If you want to join our conversation, please call 1-866-472-5790. You know, Doyle, it's very funny. When I first started doing Design Matters, um, I had um, a listener write in and tell me that um, I fawned a little bit over my guests sometimes, and so I've always been really cognizant of 
of trying to sort of rein in my private enthusiasm, although I'm sometimes more successful at it than others. But today was just, I just said to myself when I woke up, it's going to be an all-out fun day for Mr. Young. So I apologize to anybody that feels that I might be overly fawning, but I think you'd probably agree that Doyle Young deserves it. Doyle, we have another caller on the line. We have Isabel from New York. Isabel, thank you for calling Design Matters. Sure. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Doyle. Hello, Isabel. Hi. I have a question. Are there any recent redesigns that you think truly missed the mark? How do you feel about the AT&T redesign? Um, eh. <laughs> 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 you know, I, I had an instructor. His name was Joe Gibby at L.A. Trade Tech. And he said, you really shouldn't criticize the other guy because he might be working in his shadow. I am uh, always so reluctant to criticize other designers' work. You never quite know what the client has demanded the designer to do. First of all, I think that anyone who attempts to design a, a, a sphere to show an international presence has an enormous task ahead of it because it's, there's so many thousands of it done. You pick up, pick up your local telephone directory in the yellow pages, and anyone who has international presence has a globe on it. Well, I think you're almost defeated before you start. Mm. It, it, seems, it seems to lack, how can I say it? It seems to lack refinement. It seems to me that the simplicity of the rendering uh, no longer looks like a globe. It, it lacks finesse, and I don't know. There. Well, it's also really tough when you're redesigning a logo that was also created by him. Yeah, the client, might, the client might insist on that. Well, that's a, it's an interesting question. Thank you for calling, Isabel. It's an interesting question. What, what happens when a client requests something or suggests something of you that you don't agree with? What do you do? How do you, how do you talk to clients or, or try to persuade them otherwise if you do when they ask you to do something that you don't feel is a good thing to do? Well, you try to show them an alternate way or you do what they say to show them first of all and then you try to counteract, counteract it. Uh, with what you think is better, and if you don't, if you can't come to any sort of an agreement, if you have enough money and don't want the clients, you can say, "Well, I don't want to do that." Have you done that? Only once. Could you talk about it, or? Well, I even forget. I even forget the actual instance. Uh, okay. Um, but but normally, most of the time, I'm able to explain to the client why I think their idea is not good if you finally show it to them. Because, you know, so oftentimes clients, they like the whole idea of the process of design. They really like it, and they want to be involved. They want, they want to contribute. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also fun for them. It's probably one of the most fun things that they get to do. Of course it is. And uh, then most of them will, uh, if, you, if you do your homework, you can usually win, I think. Now, um, I'm, I'm glad Isabel brought up the, um, the AT&T logo of only to sort of seamlessly uh, segue into uh, just a, a brief question about branding, and then I want to talk about your book. Um, but I, I read that you think that corporate identity and branding are words that spin doctors have dreamed up, and that you also think the word logo is a sloppy word. And I just wanted to ask you about that. 
Well, you know, I was around in the 60s sort of when identity was born, corporate identity was born. Yes. And they used to use the words corporate identity, and then finally it became identity. I think that every 15 years or so, uh, our culture demands that old words be cast aside and new ones applied. Mm, I think that's almost true about everything. Yes. Um, uh, and, uh, and, of course, uh, with branding, why you can expand the whole concept. It also creates more billing. I went as Henry Dreyfus, I said, <laughs> how do I get more business? And he says, well, how about more milk from contented cows? Yes. So I think that branding uh, has allowed the designer and the design firms to do that. It expands their role. Now, tell us in, in um, our remaining time, I'd really like to talk to you about your book. So is it definite that it's going to be called Dangerous Curves? Well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what people will think of, the, of that. My, my title is a little more pedestrian, which is simply Comp Logos. No, Doyle. Let's, let's, take it to, let's talk to you. You're talking to a branding girl for just a minute. Let me do my job. Okay, I think Dangerous Curves is a much better title. <laughs> you can't be serious. Oh, I, I, you know, naming a, a book is a very complicated thing. I was never happy with the title of either of my books, Logotypes and Letterforms and Fonts and Logos. I just, you know, I couldn't think of anything else to name them. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to listen to, uh, to uh, alternate names, and I don't know, Stefan might be right. Oftentimes, we're not the best judge of our work. It's mm-hmm. really true. So tell us about what the book will be about. Well, do you know, I'm a teacher. I first, in all of my talks, I've always said that. I say that I'm a teacher first and then a designer. Mm-hmm. And uh, the book is really about process, a word that I really don't. I think the development is better. And what I've, what I've done, I have over 700 s- sketches of uh, logos that I've done and developing a, a logo. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, a few, in several instances, I have been able to save a complete history of the process. Wow. Sometimes these are 40 little sketches, and then I show the final comp. I show very, very few uh, actual final art pieces. It's all about drawing and how to develop an idea and how the sketch will evolve from the previous sketch. And uh, it's about 350 pages. When will it be outdoiled? Well, I'm hoping uh, late fall, probably early spring is more realistic. I'm going to self-publish it. Yes. And uh, for the other books, your other, your other marvelous, marvelous must-have books, where could our listeners go to get them? Well, um, they can get it off of my website, which is doyleyoung.com. Wonderful. Well, they really are books that everyone should have in their library, whether they're designers or lovers of art or just lovers of culture. Doyle, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our broadcast, and I want to thank you so much for being our guest today here at Design Matters. Well, all that I can say is that I thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I'd also like to give a very special thanks to our sponsor, Adobe. Big thanks as well to Brian Travis and Ruben and Ryan at Voice America and Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling. Joining me next week live from Tokyo is Elliot Earls. 
Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.